about the unbelievable Alex Culpepper. <laughs> but it is, in fact, a sermon about unbelievable things. I just wanted to clarify that up front. Um, so <laughs> so uh, before I get into the sermon, I, uh, I want to... Uh, t- today's Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day. We can give a round of applause for our dads. Very good. So... So in honor of Father's Day, uh, I thought it would be helpful to tell some dad jokes. So um, did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? Did you guys hear about it? It's uh, great food, no atmosphere. Uh, What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. Uh, Hey, do you you guys want to hear a joke about paper? Never mind, it's terrible. Uh, Why did the coffee file a police report? It got mugged. It got mugged. Okay, that's all I got. I'm sorry, that wasn't very good. But those are dad jokes. Those are dad jokes. Uh, That's right, there we go. That a boy. Uh, So so we are are really uh, honestly very grateful for our dads. Um, dads mean a lot to us. They, they reveal something to us of God's character, of, of who God is. They, they raise us up. They pour their energy to provide for, for families, to protect their families. And so, uh, so I, uh, this morning I want to say a prayer uh, to thank the Lord for our dads. And I know many of us too, um, we're going through the, the reality of, of either caring for dads who are really sick or we've lost dads too. And, and I, wanna, I, w- I just want to thank the Lord for, for what he has given to us and our dads. So let's pray together. Father, uh, you are the perfect dad to us. You care for us so perfectly. You reveal your character to us in so many ways. You, you seek to raise us up in the way that we should go, Lord. You discipline us sometimes. Uh, and Lord, you, you choose to invest in us. Lord, you love us so well. And I thank you for the way that you reveal your character through dads. Lord, some people haven't had great experiences with dads. Some people have had awesome experiences with dads. And wherever we are along that spectrum, we acknowledge together here today that that in this community, in this group of people, we have dads who love well, who love their kids well, who love this community well. And and today we are grateful for them. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that they would just be honored uh, today. And Lord, that in honoring them, we might honor you as well. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So dads, we have a, a, after we finish the service today, there is going to be a, a special treat for you out in the, the foyer so uh, you can get that. We have some dads root beers for you. So, uh, so you, uh, you, can, you can get some of that and, uh, and we'll be good to go. So if we have kids uh, this morning, you guys can meet at the back of the sanctuary here. We're going to dismiss you to, uh, to up to kids ministry. So we're good there. And then if you have your Bibles, I know you heard Amanda uh, read the scripture, but if you could open to Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to be in verse 31 this morning. And uh, I want to talk to you about a human principle. So uh, that principle is this, we human beings, we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into things that we believe in. We throw ourselves wholeheartedly into things that we believe in. 
So, uh, so I had this friend from high school. He was incredibly smart, really, really smart, but did not apply himself at all. He didn't invest at all in his, his schoolwork. And, and I think his problem was is that he actually didn't believe in the practicality of the education that he was receiving. He didn't believe that the school actually had anything good to offer him, and so he didn't invest himself in that at all. And, uh, and so then he went to college, and he got an engineering degree in college. In fact, he excelled in college. Uh, he in, ended up designing a project for Tesla, uh, and, he, he, and that's because when he got to college, when he got into that thing, that he, he saw the practicality of it, and he believed in the process. So, so at one time, he didn't really believe in the value of education, but then he actually got to pour himself into something that he believed in. And, and it, because he believed in it, he actually ended up doing a lot of good. He invested himself wholeheartedly in that thing. Another realm that this occurs, the process of buying a home. I have to tell you, if I have not like, watched other people go before me in the process of buying a home, I would have a really hard time believing in that process, right? Because uh, this, is, this is something that uh, when, when, I, when my wife and I, we sat down in this office, this really stuffy room, uh, and, and we were getting ready to buy our, our first home, and like, we have to sign like 250 pages of <laughs> documents and like with our blood we had to pour blood out on the papers to make sure that like we were okay and I have to tell you like we were I felt like we were signing our lives away and I would not have felt comfortable with that process I would not have have signed all of those pages had I not watched tons of people go before me and and have that process work out well for them right so because those other people went before I could actually believe in the process and I could agree to kind of sign my life away in that situation uh, and then the, the last one that I want to talk about, the last realm where we can kind of see this, there's a, a cultural trend of kind of our marketed society is that people believe wholeheartedly in brands, right? So, so people throw themselves wholeheartedly at different brands. A few weeks ago, we talked about Apple and Android and how people throw themselves wholeheartedly at those things, uh, whether it's cars or clothes. Um, my, my grandfather was a committed Ford man. He always bought Ford vehicles, no matter what, and he would not stand for anybody to buy anything else, right? So we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into brands, and the reason we do that is because we believe in them. We believe that these brands are going to stand for something good, that they're going to keep us safe, that they're going to protect us. And so we trust those brands. To, to, we give our livelihood to those brands. And the, the, the principle that we're talking about is that we invest ourselves wholly, wholeheartedly in the things that we believe in. So this is a concept, by the way, that Jesus was very aware of. Uh, and he actually recognized, this is what he recognized. He recognized that people would not throw themselves wholeheartedly into the kingdom if they did not believe in the kingdom. He recognized that clearly. And so, uh, so he actually, in his parables, one of his goals, one of the things that he's doing is he's trying to dismantle unbelief. He's trying to take apart unbelief because he knows if that, that if people don't believe wholeheartedly in the kingdom, then they're not going to give themselves 
to it. So Matthew 13, that's where we're at today, and we're looking at the parables. And I'm going to review for us, I'm going to take us back a few weeks now uh, to a definition that we developed for the parables. Parables are stories, analogies, or illustrations that are told with the intention of showing people or confusing people about the realities of God's kingdom. And if you're confused about that definition, uh, I, would, I would invite you uh, just to go three weeks ago, I think it was like May 28th or something like that, uh, or 26th, I can't really remember right now. But if you go on our website, you can go back and listen to the sermon three weeks ago. We kind of really dug into what is Jesus trying to do with parables? What's he trying to accomplish here? So that's the definition of parables. Um, and uh, there's this really, uh, really smart guy who wrote a really helpful book on the parables. His name is Craig Blomberg. And he categorized the parables into sort of three different categories. There are uh, parables that make one point, parables that make two points, and parables that make three points. And the reason I talk about that is because all of the parables that we're looking at today, we're looking at four different parables, all of them make one point. And one point alone. And it's important that we note the fact that they only make one point because uh, people, what they'll try to do is they'll try to look at the different characters in the parable. They'll try to look at the different uh, symbolism in the parable. And they'll try to say that Jesus is actually saying a whole bunch of things at once. And what we need to understand is that with each of these parables today, uh, people who understand language a whole lot better than I do have categorized each of these parables as one-point parables, which means that Jesus is really just trying to say one thing. Each parable, he's just trying to say one thing. Um, And this is how they do that. They do so through something called the principle of disequilibration. The principle of disequilibration is this. They're unexpected or shocking details that disturb the listener's existing way of thinking. So when Jesus tells us these parables, he's trying to rock our world a little bit. He's trying to disturb our thinking a little bit. Um, and, and so he's talking about the kingdom, and the kingdom is actually a place where some pretty unbelievable things happen, or at least unexpected things. And in this group of parables that we're looking at today, Jesus is going to talk about those unexpected things. What we have are we have two sets of parables that occur right next to each other. They're kind of twin sets, and, and the twins in each set, they, they carry kind of the same meaning. So the first two parables that we're going to look at, they carry uh, with them basically the same point. So we're going to look at that first set of parables, and then the second set of parables that we're going to look at, they carry together inside of them basically the same point. And the two parables together, what they try to poke at, what they try to get at, is our unbelief. So um, I want to prepare us this morning, before we go into looking at these parables, I actually uh, want us to to think about a little bit of self-examination. Where do we disbelieve God? Where does unbelief exist inside of us? Um, I, in, in a moment, I'm actually going to pray before we get into to looking at these parables, but um, uh, we need to be really aware that, that in our core, in our nature, we have inside of us this thing that doesn't want to take God at his word, that doesn't want to believe him. 
And so, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going to pray now, and I'm just going to invite the Lord to reveal these things to us. So would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring an awareness inside each and every one of us of the ways in which we don't believe you. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have provided belief. But, but Lord, uh, we need you to show us. Because it exists, I would wager that some level of unbelief to one extent or another, exists inside of every single one of us. Whether it's through doubt or whether it's through fear, Lord, it's there. And Lord, would you bring it to light for us that we might submit it to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so parable number one. This is the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew 13, 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So uh, there are a few things to note here. First of all, We're not talking about a mustard seed or a mustard plant in light of all possible plants that might exist. Uh, But notice he he specifies, he's talking about garden plants. So people in Jesus' time, they had gardens. It was an agrarian society. Most people took care of the food that they needed by tending their gardens. And he's talking about the kinds of things that people would choose to plant in their gardens. And uh, and so... uh, I want to just throw a picture up here for you. There's a picture of a mustard seed right there. That's how big a mustard seed is. Very tiny. Um, and, uh, and so this seed, actually, of all the seeds that, that a person would plant in their garden, the mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds. Now, when the mustard seed grows to actually become a tree, this is what it looks like. The next one. There we go. Very good. So this is, this is a mustard tree, um, and it actually, it gets pretty big. Um, if you compare it to all the other things that a person might have in their garden, this is the biggest plant, the biggest thing that exists in their whole garden. So, so that's, that's kind of what we're looking at, the comparison of the two things, that this one really small thing would actually become fairly big. Now, the, the reason I kind of have a problem with this, and I, I think maybe some of Jesus' listeners might have had a problem with this too, is because of all the plants to pick, Jesus chose to pick a mustard tree. Like a mustard tree out of everything to pick. There are so many other things that Jesus could have picked to talk about size or strength or something like that, but, but he chose to pick this mustard tree. Now, because there are like cedars. The cedars, in fact, in the Middle East are a really big deal. The, 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 you can read in scripture about the cedars of Lebanon. They are these massive trees that, uh, that people would write about all the time. And if we're going to compare the kingdom of heaven to something, why, why, why not compare it to the cedars of Lebanon or something like that? Why are we talking about mustard plants? Because as, as, as mustard plants go, or as, as trees go, like mustard trees are kind of like minimal, and the whole like, list of things that we could, 
we could select. And so, um, uh, or maybe like we could pick something like a building. I don't know. Like, but why does Jesus choose to pick this one thing? That's a, that's a question that I have. Um, and I want to tell you about what Jesus' critics um, said. When, when Jesus' critics looked at him, they looked at his disciples, they looked at this uh, ragtag bunch of people. Uh, it was a small, small group. And Jesus says something so bold as to say, like, the kingdom of God is here with me. Like, I am, in fact, bringing in the kingdom of God. He says something like that. And, and, and people would look at this movement that Jesus was starting, and it was so small. In fact, people didn't actually believe that Jesus was bringing the kingdom because his movement was so small, because there were so few people that were there with him. So Jesus says something to them. He says, you want to understand the kingdom? Its beginnings are like this small seed, smaller than any of the other seeds that you might plant in your garden. But when it's fully grown, it's bigger than every single other plant in your garden. To the point that, that it's not actually just benefiting the farmer, but, but you see how it says the birds of the air? The birds of the air come to, to rest in the tree. It's not just a benefit for the farmer, but it, it's a benefit for everything around it. So what is Jesus doing with this parable? He's confronting unbelief. He's confronting something that exists inside of all of his listeners so where they're not believing something about what the kingdom is supposed to do. They're looking at Jesus' movement and saying, actually, it, it can't possibly, the kingdom can't possibly be there because the kingdom is supposed to be so much bigger than this. And this points out a problem, and I want us to associate with this problem. In fact, I want us to own this problem as our problem. And the problem is this. In general, we don't believe that small things produce kingdom-sized results. In general, we don't believe that small things produce kingdom-sized results. The crowds didn't believe it was possible, you know, with the, the disciples, this really small group of people. One of them's a, a tax collector, and if you just want to know what, like, the moral equivalent of a tax collector was then, think of, like, a drug dealer today, like how we might look at a drug dealer or consider a, a drug dealer. That's what a tax collector was, and he kind of was in Jesus's bunch. You had a zealot in Jesus's bunch, basically a political nut job, uh, walking with Jesus all, all around. This small group of people with a bunch of crazies in it, and, uh, and they were a really small group, and the crowds looked at them, and he said, that can't be the kingdom. And, the, and so they looked at them with unbelief. So that's the first parable. The second parable is this. It's the parable of the leaven. Matthew thirteen thirty three. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So first, first of all, we have to talk about leaven, or uh, this is yeast for, uh, for us modern-day bakers. But uh, other places in Scripture, we kind of have to, to get our mind right about this. Uh, other places in Scripture, leaven is used as a symbol of evil or sin. That is not the case here. So we just need to clarify that. Um, it's kind of like, you know, a, a, a lion, the symbol of a lion is used in one place in Scripture to describe Satan and in another place in Scripture to describe Jesus, right? So we just have to recognize the context and, and figure out what the, the person giving the illustration is trying to do with it. So in this case, leaven is a good thing. Leaven is a good thing. And, and um, 
So yeast portion, the, per, the portion of yeast versus the portion of flour that you need. If, if you've done any baking, you really know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know that you only need a little bit of yeast to go inside the flour to really impact the flour. And this is what, uh, this is what leaven accomplishes in the flour. Uh, it expands the dough. It actually makes the dough rise, right? That's one of, that's one of the main things that we understand. But it also strengthens the, the dough. It helps it to hold together. It, 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 provides, it, it provides sort of a binding force. And then it actually makes the bread more flavorful. So those are, those are all the things that, that leaven is able to do. And then we have to look at the measures of flour. I don't know, uh, so three measures of flour is a lot of flour. In fact, uh, I figured out it's like enough to feed 150 people. Like that's, that's how much bread we're talking about this woman making, which is a massive amount of bread for one person to make. Uh, and, and the point, and we're going to see this in just a second. Thirdly, uh, Jesus uses the word all. So we have this massive amount of flour. And the leaven is indiscernible when you observe the whole thing, when you observe all of it, but yet... The entire thing, enough food to feed 150 people, the entire thing is affected and benefited by this leaven that you can't see. This thing that's really indiscernible. This thing that you can't understand. And so, so Jesus is talking about, yes, this leaven, it's small, it's hidden inside. Nobody expects it to do anything. But then when it actually does its work, the bread is strengthened. It's increased in flavor. Uh, it, it grows and it expands and Jesus' point, Jesus' point with both of these parables is simply this. This is his simple one point. This small kingdom will grow to make a noticeable difference in the world. This small kingdom will grow to make a noticeable difference in the world. So Jesus, he's confronting the unbelief of people and saying this small indiscernible thing that you, you don't believe in right now, that you can't see how it will grow, it's actually going to grow and have a massive impact. So, uh, so living on the end of history that we do, we actually have stories. We have the opportunity to kind of look back and, and see what has happened with the church and see if actually like Jesus was right when he said these things. So uh, there's this author, his name is Rodney Stark, and he provides a really helpful accounting of how the early church grew. So uh, you start with Jesus and, and his group of disciples, um, and uh, at the end of the first century, from that time to the end of the first century, what you have are 10,000 Christians, which is not a huge number. 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, um, and that is, that's around uh, 9900 AD. And that's, uh, by the way, that is 0.0017% of the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire. That's how many Christians existed. At the end of the second century, by the way, between first century and second century, off and on again, you get persecution of Christians, people trying to quell Christians, to try to do away with them. At the end of the second century, there are 200,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. That's 0.36% of the entire Roman Empire. By 250 AD, there are now more than 1 million Christians in the Roman Empire. 
That's 2% of the entire thing. So then something, in 250 AD actually, something happened. Uh, a major event in Christian history happened where the, the Roman emperor decided he was going to basically inflict the harshest persecution of Christians that has ever occurred up to this point. He decides he wants to wipe Christians off the map. And so by 300 AD, there were approximately 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire. That's 10% of the entire thing. And if you want to know the rest of the story, by 350 AD, around the time that Emperor Constantine came into power, almost the entire Roman Empire identified themselves as Christian. So, so people talk about Constantine as if he was responsible for the spread of Christianity, right? As if he's actually like the one who did this and made all of this stuff happen. And all he was really doing was responding to a movement that had already taken place in the Roman Empire. Almost the entire Roman Empire identified as Christian. So, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> like that, as I reflect on that, like what God was able to accomplish, this small kingdom, these Jesus with, yes, his three and then his 12 disciples, and then maybe you have the 70 around them, but you don't have a very big group of people And within the span of 250 years, it becomes the majority religion in the known world. So there's that. And then there's those people, those Christians, throughout those hundreds of years, actually, those people created places, uh, the places where they were, um, they were benefited greatly because they were there. So Christians, they built most of the first hospitals in the Roman world. Christians were on and are on the front lines of care for orphans in our world. The most significant historical advances in education today, our our education system is the result of, of Christians hundreds of years ago working because they believed that it was important to educate people. The things like the printing press and universities and public education, all this came about because Christians cared about the world. Christianity effectively raised the status of women in society. When Christian missionaries, they they go around, we send them out around the world, they go around uh, into the developing developing world, and some of their first steps are actually to, to give tools and resources to the people groups that they go to, to bring clean water, to do these kinds of things. So, so places where the kingdom exists, not only has it grown to be this massive thing, but when the kingdom goes to places, those places are actually benefited greatly. Even the smallest aspects of the kingdom have the power to produce major results. So I have, I have a couple of stories that I want to share with you. And these are, I think, some of the most amazing stories I've ever heard about the way the kingdom has, has grown. So September 1857 in New York, there were six businessmen. And they met together in September of 1857 for the very first time to pray. They met on a very small street in New York. And by the end of 1858, they had started a movement of lunchtime prayer, uh, prayer meetings all around the Northeast. And that because these prayer meetings all happened, there were over 20,000 people who came to believe in Jesus through those meetings. And it started with six people. And a year and a half later, 20,000 people come to Jesus. 
in Cuba. Uh, I heard this story. I, I just got, I got back from uh, council, Alliance General Council, uh, a couple of weeks ago, went down to Florida and got to hear uh, the work that God is doing in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, in Cuba, an atheist was converted to Christianity after his wife was physically healed when Christians prayed for her. Shortly after he was converted, uh, the pastor of the church that he was a part of actually had to leave. And this guy, this former atheist who, who just became a Christian, he was called to be the pastor of his church. And from there, through starting prayer meetings, he was able to launch a church planting movement across the entire country, across Cuba. As he pastored there, he started prayer meetings and and he started releasing other leaders to go plant churches. And in 2010, he cast a vision that by 2020, there would be 100 churches planted. From 2010 to 2020, he would, he would be a part, or the, the movement that they were doing would be a part of planting 100 churches. By the end of August, they will have planted 87 churches. 87 churches across the country of Cuba. And this man today, this man who was an atheist and then shortly thereafter became a Christian, this man is the, the president of the Christian Missionary Alliance in Cuba. So what does this mean for Alliance Bible Church? If that could happen, what could the Lord do here? What could he do? What kind of movement could he start? You know, there are roughly 40,000 people in Bartlett, maybe 10% of whom are truly Christ followers. And in this room, there is, in this room right now, there's 0.0015% of Bartlett's population in this room. But Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts small and significant, and soon it delivers completely unexpected results. So, so I have a confession to make. If I look at um, what just what is um, in our church, it's easy for me to have a twinge of unbelief. We don't have many people. We don't have a ton of resources. Um, you know, all of those things. It's easy for me to have a twinge of unbelief. Because I know what God can do, but I think I struggle to believe that he actually will do it. So I know what God can do, but I struggle to believe that he actually will do it. But what I have to ask myself and what I would encourage you to ask yourself, and, and I, I want to even ask you the question right now, is the kingdom present here? So, sorry, it's not a rhetorical question. Is the kingdom present here? Yes, absolutely. The kingdom is present here. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about our purpose statement. Uh, we are working together to restore hope to all people. So we have to ask the question, will God actually do it? You know, there are, um, there are broken relationships that could be restored. There's mental illness that could be overcome. There are addictions in this community that could be left behind. There are past abuses that could be forgiven. 
There are physical ailments that could be healed. There are lives that could be changed. You know, we actually, we have the ability through this group of people to proclaim the gospel to every man, woman, and child within a two-mile radius of this church. Those are all things that can happen. And if the kingdom is present here, Jesus says that it will happen. That things like this will happen. That the kingdom will actually grow and it will have an impact on the world around it. You know, I I think we struggle to believe it, but Jesus says that the kingdom is present, even if it's like a mustard seed, it will grow and infiltrate and impact and make a noticeable difference. Okay, that's the first two parables. Second two parables. Parable three, the hidden treasure. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So this is a story. This is an analogy about priorities. But before we examine that, there are really two significant things that we have to note. First of all, we have to see that the man has a surprising joy that erupts out of him. Like once he finds the treasure, he reacts instantly. And, and he has such a fast-paced response. He actually works really quickly to, to go and sell everything he has to make sure that he gets that field because it's so important for him to have that field. So can you imagine encountering something so valuable that you would instantly rearrange your entire life so that you could make sure that you got this thing? You bank everything that you have on the value of that thing. So this would kind of be like us being able to go back in time and maybe like we, uh, we meet with Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, and, and Jeff Bezos is looking for some ground floor investors. And knowing what I know today, if I went to Jeff Bezos then, I would say, bro, I'm selling everything I have and I'm giving it to you because I know what's going to happen right? I'm going to bank everything on that because I know what's going to happen, right? And, and Jesus is saying that, that when this person discovers the treasure, he instantly knows the value of it. There's no question in his mind. And so he goes and he banks everything on that piece of treasure. So again, Jesus, he's confronting unbelief with this parable. He's asking, are you He's actually stating, like, this is how valuable the kingdom is. Are you willing to sort of sacrifice everything that you have? Would you be willing to sell everything that you have? Would you be willing to bank your entire existence on the kingdom? Because I think, like, we draw lines, right? So I want you to fill in the blank, and just in your own, in your own head, fill in the blank. There's nothing that could cause me to sacrifice blank. What is it? My social status. My secret sins. My standard of living. My career path. There's nothing that could cause me to sacrifice my entertainment choices. Now, my entire livelihood, maybe. My comfort. My extracurricular activities. Jesus is saying, like, we, we tend to believe that, that the, the things that we prioritize in our life that it's, it's really hard to displace those priorities. And we actually, we tend to believe that the, the things that other people prioritize, that it's hard to displace those priorities. 
See, our problem, and this is the problem that I want us to associate with this morning, our problem is that in general, we tend to doubt or disbelieve that anything is compelling enough to displace personal priorities. We don't believe that anything is compelling enough to displace personal priorities. Okay, so that's parable three. Parable four is this. It's the pearl of great value. Matthew thirteen forty-five and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So pearl, uh, I want to talk about what he means by pearls because these are not the things that we find inside of clamshells. These are, these are actually, um, the, the word pearl is a, a broad word used to identify all kinds of jewels. So a pearl merchant is actually just a jewel merchant. Uh, and um, the equivalent would be, the equivalent to this situation would be, kind of be like a jeweler uh, stumbling on the most valuable diamond in the world. But they didn't just stumble upon it. They, like, they devoted their lives to finding the most valuable diamond in the world. And, and the moment they found that diamond, they gave up their entire jewelry store, all of their assets, to make sure that they could own that diamond. So I want to show you a picture of the most valuable diamond in the world. This is the Kuhnur diamond, and this is one of the English crown jewels. Uh, this sits inside the crown of the Queen, Queen of England on this day, and uh, it is the most valuable diamond in the world. In fact, it is so valuable that uh, people who appraise diamonds refuse to put a price tag on it. They cannot put a price tag on it. So there's like there's like priceless. It's calling something priceless. Like that's how valuable it is. And then there's like another level above priceless. And that's where this is. This is how valuable this diamond is. And it'd be like this, this jeweler, this, this merchant of jewels going along. And, and when he finds this diamond, he kind of gets rid of everything just to own that diamond. And then there's also, there's a subtle difference between these two parables, and I want to note it. Because in the two parables, you have one person who's not looking for anything. They kind of just are walking, and they stumble upon some treasure. So you have a person who's not looking for anything, and then they find something. And then you have uh, this jewel merchant who's actually looking. He's seeking. He's searching. And he finds it. And, and the point is, whether you're looking for it or whether you're not looking for it, when you find the kingdom, when you actually see it for what it is, it's worth giving everything for. So the point of these two parables is this. When people truly see the kingdom, they make it their ultimate priority. When people truly see the kingdom, they make it their ultimate priority. So now what I could do is I could go into a little bit of a talk about how, hey, let's do a better job of prioritizing. But instead, I want to ask the question, what is so compelling about the kingdom? What is so compelling to the disciples? What is so compelling to the earliest Christians that they would actually give up, that they would bank their entire existence on the kingdom? So not to harp on the purpose statement so much, but this is why we stated it as we did, that, that we believe the kingdom actually has the power to restore hope in a broken world. 
So our world, our world, the people in it, there, there are places all around us that are wrecked by brokenness. There are broken homes. There are people who are struggling to feed their families. There are kids who don't have parents. There is alcoholism. There is drug abuse. There is manipulation. There's coercion. There is abuse of power. There is pride. There is anger. There's jealousy and there's selfishness. And most of all, above any of that, you have people who are alienated from their father because of sin. We're alienated from our Father in heaven because of sin. And this is why the kingdom is valuable. The kingdom is valuable because the kingdom restores hope in the midst of brokenness. The kingdom restores hope, first of all, by offering the promise of a restored relationship with the Father in heaven. No matter the brokenness that exists, because Jesus the Son was willing to accept the punishment for sin for every single person who trusts in him. The kingdom then restores hope by working to actually undo all the places of brokenness and replace them with good and God-glorifying things. And finally, the kingdom ultimately restores hope in the promise that one day our king is going to come back and he's going to set up his righteous rule on the earth. He's going to undo every broken piece of authority that is in this world and he will set up and he will reign in perfect righteousness and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that's the kingdom so from both of these sets of parables and where Jesus gives us these pictures of the kingdom what we need to recognize this morning is this the realities of the kingdom defy our unbelief so as we prayed earlier and as uh, you've maybe done some self-reflection I don't know where you're unbelief is but but the reality is that that the kingdom when we see it it defies our unbelief okay so what so what so there are uh, three things that i uh want to tell you about first of all i'd love for you to do some self-reflection for all of us to do some self-reflection so i'd ask you uh, ask yourself the question what is your except. Like, okay, I'll give everything except, or I'll do anything except, or Jesus can call me to anything except this. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your blank is, but but reflect on that. Reflect on that thing that might keep you from throwing yourself wholeheartedly into the kingdom. And, uh, and there are three simple categories that you can use to think through this. You can think of, what time do I have? What, what time has the Lord allowed me to, to steward? What talents do I have? What skills has he given me? And, and what is my treasure? What, what can I do with my money, my financial uh, resources that he has provided for me? But what is your accept in any of those categories? Figure out what that is. Reflect on that. A second thing would be this. Tell someone, I don't care who it is, but tell anybody about the king. Because if we believe, so, so get, walk with me for a second. If we actually believe that when people see the kingdom, that they will prioritize everything towards it, then we should be telling as many people as possible about the king. Because when we let them know who he is, and, and we, we just hope and we pray that they see it, because when they actually do see it, Gosh, they're going to rearrange their whole life to follow that thing. They're going to go after it wholeheartedly. So tell somebody. Just pick a person. I don't care who it is, but tell somebody about the king. 
The third thing, uh, Pastor Don and I processed this a little bit, and um, it's something that we're going to start moving towards. This is called Pray and Go. This is uh, an effort that we're going to put forward, um, and we're going to do it in connection to our Sunday morning prayer meetings. Um, Starting, I'd like to start July 7th. Um, Starting July 7th, we're going to send out a couple of people every Sunday morning to go around our neighborhoods um, to pray for every single house. To, to walk around, to pray for every single house, to ask that the Lord would make people aware of their spiritual brokenness, that, that the Lord would open their eyes to their spiritual need, that, that, uh, that he would actually invite them. And then we're gonna, uh, we're gonna provide these people who go out with door hangers, uh, things that they can put on the doors of each house just to let those families know, hey, our church prayed for you, we care for you. If there's anything that you want us to pray specifically for, please reach out to us, let us know. Um, this is who we are, this is where we are, but we just want to let you know that we love you. And we're going to do that, we're going we're gonna to actually, we're going to make a map, um, and we're going to follow the house. And I, my understanding is that we've done this before. We've done this before as a church, so this is exciting for me. But we're going to make a map of, of all the houses that we've prayed for, and we're just going to do expanding circles. And we're going to invest in loving this community through prayer. So if you want to be a part of that, which I think would be an amazing thing to be a part of, you can join us on Sunday mornings at, at 8.45 or 9 o'clock or, you know, kind of whenever we get rolling. But join us in that because what we'll do is that, that the, the people that we send out each morning, we're going to pray specifically for them. It'll kind of be like a weekly commissioning of those people to send them out to go around our community to pray for them and, and to invest in simply pouring prayer into the families of this place because we believe that Jesus is actually going to do something because his kingdom is here. His kingdom is here. So would you pray with me please?